didn't have eventual plans to donate mine when it gets really long, I would do it now, but yeah. <laughs> you have the eyebrows for it. I just waxed them myself. It was another oh, yeah. <laughs> quarantine experiment. I let it go for like the two months or whatever. And then I, and I, my friend recommended this new thing that comes with like a numbing cream, which didn't exist when we were younger. Yeah. <laughs> so just did them. <laughs> Mine don't grow anymore. Um, I have to add them. I don't know what, like I hit 40 and suddenly my eyebrows just stopped growing. So I used to, you know, when I was younger, it was all about the little eyebrow. And so after years and years of waxing, they just, they just don't grow anymore. So I'm going to get them tattooed on eventually. Well, I've got two, two years left before I hit 40. So we'll see. I'll enjoy, enjoy them while I have them. Oh, well, you look great. Um, it's, it's great to not look your age, especially when you're, um, in the entertainment field. <laughs> yeah, well, I can, I attribute that to many years of, um, homeschooling and being <laughs> completely isolated from the world, which like honestly is making quarantine nostalgic and traumatic at the same time. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I spent a lot of my childhood alone just because people were mean, but, uh, <laughs> so I understand, yeah. I understand. By, cho by choice, not by coercion, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just, uh, my mom was busy working and the kids were mean and my brothers were too old to really hang out with me. And so, I, and I'm not really big on going outside. So I'm not real big sun, fun in the sun person. So that helps. Um, I smoked for a long time. So I'm at, I can't imagine how much better I would look if I didn't smoke. Yeah, I also smoked for a long time. I noticed the vape. I've got mine as well. It's been yeah. keeping me going during the time inside. Not that I, I mean, I quit smoking like five years ago, maybe, but I haven't been able to totally abandon the, the nicotine. Oh, and like, no, I'm, I try not to be too hard on myself about it, to be honest. Like my therapist and I talk about it a lot. It's like, you know, given my upbringing and everything else, like I think I could have gone a lot, like I could be doing a lot worse in terms yeah. of prices and habits. And it's like, so, you know, if you truly is in a jewel, like, it's not that bad. <laughs> no, I, I managed to thwart addictions to meth and cocaine and alcohol and pills, um, all things I dabbled in but never managed to quit <clears throat> before they got out of hand. And so nicotine's it. Like, it's my only real vice. Um, and caffeine. I have to have like one cup of coffee in the morning. Um, yeah. And God, they're good together, right? It's like when I'm going to take my first mug off of the like yeah. coffee maker and then pick this up. It's, it's good. And I've been trying, I have started meditating during quarantine, which I never did before. I was like, not convinced that I wasn't able to do it. And finally I was like, come on, like, how can you not do that? It's not church. You'll be fine. Like, and I, so I started doing it, but I made the mistake for the first few days of still doing the coffee and nicotine before meditation, which is definitely not, you need to go in like cold. So now I've been doing like the 10 minute guided sessions and then rewarding myself with the first sip. <laughs> I feel really high and just stare at the wall. Does that count as meditation? 
I think so. <laughs> I mean, I will say, I honestly do think, and I, who knows, right? You can never tell which of the different factors contribute to something because there's so much going on right now that's not normal for me, like staying home all the time, meditating, whatever. But I have noticed I've been doing it for about three weeks now. And I will say that I feel like stuff is coming a little faster. Um, but that could also just be because I'm completely by myself inside. I don't know. <laughs> well, the first three weeks I was just in a spin, um, just in a panic, in a spin, uh, when they canceled comedy, uh, yeah, it really threw me for a spin. And then I had a breakup. I had a lot of things happen the first three weeks. I got a job, then I got fired. So I had a lot of things happen in the first three weeks of this quarantine that really just threw me for a loop. And then I spent a week just like, like recovering and just yeah. out of my mind depressed. Uh, that's, that's a lot. That's yeah. a lot. Yeah, it was a lot, man. Uh, and now I finally... I've like regained my footing, but I couldn't even like, like I was like, there's so much time I have to do all these things I've been trying to do while doing stand up and having a life that I have time for now, but I don't, I can't even think clearly. My brain was just like a fog for a while. And so I've just finally got my footing back like this week, last week to actually get motivated to do anything. Um, but yeah, weed is helping. Is it, is it legal where you're at? You're in Philadelphia, right? Yeah, I have a, I mean, I have my medical card, so it's medical okay. only, but I thankfully got my card actually from Sam, who's the other Philly comic. Um, I think he's on the list as well for the festival. Um, but Sam, Sam Katz, so she does, she works in cannabis and does like medical certifications and stuff. So she was hosting an event right before, I think maybe three weeks before the oh. pandemic. Good. I was fortunate enough to go and, and get my card. So that's been good. I've been able to do curbside and, you know, still keep up with that. I've been experimenting with some new things. I made some uh, peanut butter cookies the other day. Like I've been able to do some stuff that I wouldn't normally like. I'm usually like a on the go, just get my pen and go. I'm not like fancy about it, but I've been able yeah. to like, try out some new stuff. Like I got a little vaporizer thing. So that's been kind of fun to like get into like weed culture. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I'm really into, I like, um, I like sativa chiba chews. I like my experience to be consistent and, um, predictable. Um, so I don't really experiment a lot. I do, you know, when I go to mics and stuff, the kids, as I call them, are always out, you know, smoking, whatever. And I will, you know, just hit whatever flower they're smoking or they have little dabs thing. They have all sorts of things out there. Yeah. And I will hit those and occasionally I regret it. Occasionally I get way too high and I'm like, ah, what did I do? I've never done live in-person comedy with an ounce of weed. I've definitely done with drinking. I'm just so new to it. I don't really know how I'm going to, how it's going to affect me yet. But with yeah. the pandemic, now I'm sort of getting, I'm trying. I think I can do it now. Yeah. No, <laughs> so I, I am hosting a lot of shows, actually. I have one tonight. Um, so I've been producing and hosting a decent number of shows. And I noticed at the beginning, people were just like, fuck it. Like people were vaping and smoking, lighting up joints. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll do it too. And I think that it's a little different at home though, because you're comfortable, you're sitting in your chair. Like, I don't know, there's something about being in person that and being too high by accident and then having to go up on stage yeah. that I'm not sure I would be quite ready for yet. But That's it has like the 
yeah. Even Chiba Chews, because I know if I take it at a certain time, I know about like two hours from now about how I'm going to feel. So if I can time it right, I can perform and not be too high or not be, you know, completely sober. But I spent, I've been doing it for four years. Uh, the first three years, I was militant about never going on stage with any sort of stimulant, with no no alcohol, no weed, because um, I just didn't want to get dependent on something to get me up there. Um, and then become an alcoholic or something. You know what I mean? Because if I'm, if I'm dependent on Sativa Chiba Chews and I don't have money to buy them, I, what, I can't perform comedy? I don't want to be like that. So, um, but then I moved here to Denver and um, I just kind of said, fuck it. And just started going up at mics really high and just seeing what happens. Um, fun. <laughs> yeah. And I think you have a better I mean, you have a better selection of stuff too. Yeah. So I was there. So I was in Colorado. I mean, I've been probably 10 times, but I was there last summer for my friend who lives in Phoenix, where I used to live, convinced me to go to this festival called Arise. And I've literally never been to a festival at all, let alone a festival in Colorado. <laughs> um, it was weird. I mean, the daytime was all like, the daytime was more my style, was, like folk music, bluegrass, like, you know, kind of old school country, a little bit of like weird sort of like, fusion stuff but then like at night it was an EDM event and so it kind of the whole thing sort of transitioned from during the day like hi and like craft beers and yoga and like bluegrass and then at night just like the same like three notes over and over again like that made me feel very very old <laughs> yeah I can't do that I can't I was back in the tent my friend was like do you want to do shrooms and I was like I don't think so I think what I would like to do is go back to the tent at 11:30 and sleep because we're going to get woken up at like 5 a.m. with the people that are coming back from the music. The old people <laughs> and it's yeah. better porta potty time. But it was just like but anyway, my point is that on the way to the festival we stopped at the dispensary and it was cool because there's just, you know, the selection compared to what we have here or in New York where I was before this is just not the same like the first time I went to a legal dispensary it was like walking into Willy Wonka's, you know, and I went to a small one. I like, I like go to the green solution here, which is considered like the Apple store of weed, but I really like it. Um, and I, if I had walked into that, my head would have exploded, but I just walked into a, a smaller, a smaller one. that's kind of like green solution. That's very like clean and bright. Um, and I was just like, they have drinks and you know, I was just like, what? And then I got, I got my stuff and I walked out and I just, the whole time I was kind of like shaking. I felt like, is this real? Like, can I really do this? You know, like, are they going to come arrest me? It was crazy. <laughs> yeah, I know it's weird. I, I like, even just the festival, like walking around with it. Like I wasn't used to that. I'm used to being very covert about everything, you know? Yeah people just like bust it out and like look you know rolling out like blankets with like you know all the like flour and like edible and I mean there were people selling stuff too which I was like no thanks like even weed I'm not planning I'm not about to do that like from yeah. a random person if I can get it from a verified source I'd rather do that yeah there was yeah there was also a dude going around selling like all number of other things but <laughs> I, no, still, I did it I did it and that's the last time can't I moved do. back to Kansas, you know, for a few years and then just moved back here last summer. 
And the first thing I did when I got here was go to a dispensary and get Chiba Chews. Um, and I like, oh, I, I literally teared up because it was so easy just to walk in and get my stuff. Like I had five minutes, I was in and out and I was like, this is so beautiful. And um, stop it, dog. It's licking my cleavage, quit. Um, yeah, I just, it's ridiculous that we can't do it everywhere. And I feel like Kansas is gonna be one of the last holdouts. I mean, Oklahoma did it first, really? Like, I don't know. I wish Kansas would get back to more of a like Jayhawk mentality back in the day. Like, long, like what started Kansas were rebels, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like you think about like, like everyone's like, like talking about Idaho right now. It's like all the rage, like some of these random States that like, to me are random being like a, you know, person from the coast, but it's like, I don't know, like, would I, rather be in a place that maybe does feel sort of a little more old school Americana, but they're sort of like this emerging culture versus like a big expensive city. Maybe at some point, not right now, yeah. but I could, I could see myself being open to that later. I really want to come to Philadelphia and Washington DC and stuff to, I'm really, I really dig political history and just, I don't even care if I do comedy while I'm there. I could just spend, I could spend, probably two weeks all day and night just checking shit out. Um, and it is amazing. And walking around's amazing. Yeah, like New York is just a train ride. You know, what was it, two, three hour train ride? It's not that far to go yeah. to the city. So someday I have a map of the United States that I bought at the beginning of the year to start putting pins in and all the places I go. 2020 was going to be my year to travel oh. as much as possible <laughs> girl interrupted <laughs> so I feel like this is all my fault like like the universe <laughs> hates me so much that <laughs> a lot of I don't know not just I wouldn't say it's just women but I have heard that from a lot of women like this was I mean I was literally like if you know my life is a roller coaster this was the part where I was like going up the like thing and then it was gonna you know end <laughs> Like I, everything was sort of in motion. The sh yeah. math shows I was about to, on April 5th, I was going to do my first kind of big club show here in Philly at Punchline um, and like do 12 minutes, which would have been really cool. Like that was happening. I um, was uh, accepted to like a fringe arts kind of festival thing here they do in the fall to produce like kind of a multidisciplinary show. I was going to do that. Everything was going really great with my business, which, you know, my full-time business, I do like freelance marketing and strategy, but I do a lot of stuff around events. So obviously that kind of <laughs> a few of the big opportunities that I had sort of, I'm still surviving. I was actually able to walk down a contract with an engineering company to keep me stable for the next like, you know, ish for the next four to six months, assuming nothing goes wrong. But yeah, everything was sort of like all coming together and then this literally like three days later hit. Yeah, so. no, I was just starting to produce shows here um, in Denver. Um, I just kind of got my footing and got, you know, settled to where I felt comfortable starting to add on more responsibilities and producing shows and getting this nonprofit going and starting my festival. And um, I got um, booked on a show in in New Orleans and Atlanta, two places I've never been to headline, you know, just like, you know, DIY shows, but still 
Um, it was my first, you know, I haven't done a lot of headlining, much less out of town headlining, you know, and now it's, it's all gone, but it'll come back. I'm just trying to stay relevant at the moment. You know, like, hey, everybody, I'm still here. <laughs> you know, like, don't forget about me. Um, and then I'm just like, right now, I'm just really focused on the nonprofit and trying just to get these interviews done, podcast going, and just um, hopefully some decent video to put on the website to kind of add more content to the website because it's kind of bare at the moment. And, you know, I'm just moving forward as if the festival's going to happen. So until I know otherwise, um, I mean, even if it doesn't happen in July, it will happen eventually. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, it's sort of how we're charging forward over here. I mean, there are certain things that are at the scale, right, where you can't really it wouldn't make sense to do them online. So I've been sort of like sorting through like things that don't make sense. Like the fringe arts thing. I'm not going to do a multidisciplinary show online. Like it's a, it's designed for the theater. If that moves, then it moves. But yeah. um, the, uh, I produce a monthly sex ed and comedy show that just started in February. And so we'd had two editions happen when this went down, both of them sold out. And so that's actually something um, that my co-producer and I are going to do online. It's not perfect, but it can be done. You know, it's like mini sex workshops and one of the educators is already doing some of the stuff online. Um, so that will work. Comedy can also be done. We're going to be doing partnerships with the venue. So the venue where we were going to host the next one has been doing a lot of like live DJ streaming. They're delivering alcohol and like other supplies and stuff. So we're going to try to make it like a you know, a little bit more of an experience. It's, will it be exactly the same as it would have been online? No, but I feel like that one we can get like 90%, 80% of the way. So it's worth it. Yeah. That's sort, of, sort of the approach I've been using. If it's going to feel half of what it would be in person, there's no point. But if you can get it like past that 50% mark and make a little money, it might be worth it. So we've been experimenting. Yeah. I've, um, I was originally, like against doing online mics and shows initially. Uh, I was like, that's stupid. That's not going to give me what I want. You know, mm -hmm. so then I got like desperate enough. Uh, and then I watched a couple um, and they were, they were fun. Um, as an audience member, they were entertaining. So I was like, okay, well, if the audience members can be entertained. And I know they're out there being entertained. Um, and, you know, some you can, they leave it unmuted so you can hear them. But even if I can't hear them, I can see them laughing. So it's, it's something. Um, and like I said, just to keep myself relevant. And it's really interesting because, like, my friend runs a mic in Omaha at the back line on Tuesdays. And there's these comedians from all over the country that I would not ever see or meet um, maybe, or it would take a lot. That, so that's been interesting to be able to connect with comedians from out of town um, in this way. So, you know, I think we're making the best of it and comedy's going to survive because comedians are all addicts. And yeah, yeah, I know. I, if I see one more post about how much people miss it, I'm like, we know, we know. <laughs> and Sometimes I'm like, I don't even think about it necessarily, but then there's sometimes I'm just like, oh my God, I need it. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, I've, I felt that, it's interesting, I felt that the most, the virtual things have been a decent replacement, partially, again, because I'm trying to produce interesting things, so the one tonight is the second in a series, and it's a benefit, so it's called Fools for Good, and last time we had 190 people attend, so that's a shit ton wow, of Wow, that's and a lot. Yeah, I'm really good at the marketing and promotional side, just because that's what I do for a living, and I'm not afraid to, you know, it. It, it takes an hour every day. You know, it's not like, oh, post one time and they'll come. Like, you know, it's a lot of work and no. different channels and PI. We had some PR coverage locally about it. So that one benefited venues that normally host shows and comics. So that yeah. was like, you know, the top open mic venues and whatever. Each comic picked a venue they wanted to support. This time, the one tonight is the Essentials Edition. So it's benefiting the local Planned Parenthood, a few, um, like homeless ministries and um, Philly socialist aid. So it's benefiting like frontline organizations and most of the comics either have essential family members or are essential workers themselves. Um, so as of last check before this call, we had 160 registered. So that's cool. No, that is <laughs> not making all of those audience members visible. Um, so what I did last time, last time you could only see the comics, but there were 20. So it kind of gave the appearance of like an audience and then the comics were unmuted so they could laugh. Yeah. I'm, all the comics will be unmuted. And then I selected 10 audience members that I trust that I know will be engaged and quiet and they're gonna be on video and unmuted. So it'll be comics and then like 10 audience people and then the other 150 will just be, you know, invisible on the chat. Um, and the chat was pretty engaged last time. People were like, hey, Bob, like, oh, my mom's from this place. And what are you guys drinking? Oh, LOL, I'm drinking rosé too. Like people were actually like engaging. So I don't know if I can do it every two weeks and get the same engagement, but at least so far it's been good. Um, and then I'm also hosting my second uh, virtual roast battle next weekend. That oh, was, wow. that was fun. Um, I don't do roast battles. I like watching them. I don't participate in them because I honestly don't have that thickest skin. Um, and either, I mean, I'm a cancer through and through. I was like, I thought I could, I can dish it out. My, my roasts were really good. I was the host and I prepared little roasts for everybody. And then people started throwing stuff back at me, uh, like unprompted. And I was like, Oh God, maybe I'm not a good comic or maybe I do. And like, what was funny is one of the gals, she was, Oh, nice nineties eyebrows. And like, of course, the next morning I was like, oh, I should have said like, I'll take that as a compliment or something. But in the moment I was like, uh. <laughs> yeah, well, but, I thought, uh, I'm also like zero to 60 on roasting. I, I'm either nice or I'm like, I go way too far. Um, yeah. And I suck. I suck at a roasting. Um, <laughs> it's an interesting experiment. I'm trying to work my way up to it. So last time I was a host. This time I'm a judge. And then if, if it's successful and people want to do it again, I'm going to throw myself in the ring next time. But it's going to take me, it's going to take me like a full two months and three different events to finally like gear myself up to do it. Like my writing roast jokes was pretty good as a host. Like I got laughs, but yeah, getting it back from people is a lot harder because I definitely take their words. Instead of thinking of it as a joke, I'm thinking of it as the truth, which is so dumb. That's not how you're supposed to think of it at all. No, yeah, you're supposed to. It's supposed to be fun and a joke. And I mean, yeah. I grew up in a family where we roast each other. Uh -huh. um, but a lot of times I was like, my family would, like my brother Randall was really good at it and he would roast me. And then my entire family would like all roast me. Um, and like they gang up on me 
And I get pissed off when that happens. And they do it on purpose because they want me to get pissed off because that's their payoff. Me getting mad and storming out of the room and they're like, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> you know, um, so it kind of brings back a lot of those. <laughs> you think it would have built up a thicker skin and it did to a point, but then I, <laughs> I just get mad. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally get it. We'll, we'll but, see. I'll let, I'll let you, will keep you posted. If I decide to actually let myself be a victim, then maybe you can watch and support me. I'll let you know. <laughs> Too far. Um, no. So how long have you been doing comedy? Um, only been nine months. Nine months, really? Something like that. Yeah, I kind of like, I mean, it's, I arrived at it very late. So my, my class, I took a class at Philly Improv Theater here. They offer mostly improv classes, then they started ad adding stand-up classes. And... I don't really remember what it was. I mean, I had started doing some storytelling. So I do like some moths style, like story slams. Um, you know, I've been writing fiction for a while. So I have a bunch of published short stories and I'm always telling stories all the time. And a few people, I was relatively new to Philly and I had a few people be like, every time you tell a story, it's so funny. Like, I feel like people would listen to that. And I, I have never used the word funny to describe myself engaging, dynamic, um, smart, witty, maybe, but like funny, no, like it's not in the top like 20 descriptors. I was really skeptical. Um, but I was like, all right, fine. I'll take the class. What do I have to lose? Like be fine. So I took the class. I picked, um, from a few instructors, the instructor that I picked, um, Che Guerrero. Uh, I really liked his style because it is a little more sort of storytelling. It's a little less like you know, constant like punchline setup, punchline setup. Like he does a little bit more building. He's he seems very casual when he's doing it. Like he's just hanging out and talking to a friend. And I, I like that. I liked that style. Um, so yeah, so I took the class. We had a graduation show during the class. He was like, you know, I expect all of the students to go out to open mics, and of course, nobody else did. And I did my first week. So my first week, I went to the like top open mic in Philly. Just figured I'd rip the bandaid off and went and I did three minutes in like the new comics segment at the top or whatever. And I got like probably five or six laps and I was like, okay, if I can do that in front of this room that looks really unengaged and critical and like they're all staring at their phones, I can do this. Um, so yeah, I went pretty hard. I mean, I went over the spring by the time I did the graduation class and then into the fall, I probably went to like four or five open mics, mics a week. Um, and then by the fall, started getting booked, on, you know, for small opening spots and like some smaller showcases. And then just once that happened, I was like, all right, I can do this. And I just went kind of yeah, crazy. Yeah, you're a, you're a good testament of what classes can do then. Because that's kind of, that's what the nonprofit is going to do. We're going to send, you know, starting with women and then LGBTQIA and then troubled youth. I want to, I want to get them in classes for stand up and um improv if that's what they want to do instead of stand up um and uh i've seen you know there's 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 uh, christy bukley is a comedian here that does a class at um the voodoo comedy um and i her students that i've met i've met four of them and they're they're females um are so far ahead of the game i mean there are they're they're funny they have it um, to begin with, but 
she saved them probably six months to a year of just going to mics and figuring stuff out. And their stage presence is amazing. They're already like doing act outs and things that I didn't do for like three years. And, you know, so there, I, you know, a lot of people like to shit on comedy classes, but I, from what I've seen, I wish I would have started with one. Uh, Cause it really just, not just teaching you about structure of jokes and stuff like that, but like the industry and the business and the, you know, talking about, you know, how to handle things at open mics and stuff like that has just been amazing um, for them. But yeah, for you to be at the level you're at it in nine, at nine months, um, you know, is amazing. Um, yeah. I, I would have thought you were doing it much longer. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it too, is just like starting it later in life. Like I've, you know, I don't know if you follow like, or look at personality stuff at all, but I'm, you know, I've done my Myers-Briggs many times and uh, I'm a kind of classic ENFP. Um, There's actually a really good book written by a woman who is also an ENFP and that's supposed, she's like a poet and they're always like these people who have a thousand different things that they've tried and kind of get seen by other people as like, I don't know, flaky or maybe non-committal, but the reality is everything in the world is just interesting to me and I want to like get my hands on and try everything. So I was a little worried when I first started of like, is this just going to be another thing? I'm not going to tell any of my family and friends that I'm doing it because knowing me, I'll do it for five months and then I'll move on to something else. Like last year I was trying to do pole dancing. And then the year before that, I was trying to get back into musical theater. Like I'm always trying to do something. And then I think when I started, I just like something just clicked and I really fell in love with it. Like my, I'm very clear at this point in my life, like what I want to say and what I think is interesting and have all this ridiculous trauma and experience and whatever. And I actually have the clarity to talk about it. And I kind of got hooked and now I'm much more interested in it than anything else, which was a good sign. It made me want to continue. I was like, oh, if Christine can commit to something, I should keep doing it. Yeah, <laughs> no, um, so you, you're 38? About to, yeah, 38 July 1st. Yeah. Yeah. I started at 38. Um, and yeah, I think that there's a, there was a huge benefit to me starting later um, because yeah, I already went, cause like when you're in your twenties, you're, you're trying to find out who you are as a person and your voice as a person and, and trying to figure all that out while trying to figure out comedy would just be so much. So I, I did feel kind of ahead of the game when I started comedy, um, because I had all that figured out. I know who I am. I know who my voice is. And I do have 20 years of stories and experience. If I never experience another thing I still have plenty of material um and I have also been I haven't I I haven't taken that Myers-Briggs test in a long time I can't remember what I am but I probably am like you because I've lived multiple lives like I was like a church lady for three years and then you know I go through these phases of where like for two or three years I'm really committed to doing something like before I started comedy, I was an HR manager. And so I was like, I'm going to go back to school for HR. I'm going to do all these certifications. And I, I mean, I was really into it and I really meant it at the time. Yeah. Um, and then I started doing comedy and I was like, get all that. Um, HR comedy. <laughs> I mean, I have degrees in like accounting and a business and communications degree. And so I do have like, and I've done like marketing and business stuff. So I do have that, that, that background too, which is very helpful 
when I go into comedy, because I do have like the business sense and the marketing sense of it um, too. So yeah, that's probably been really helpful for you. But I just, uh, yeah, Yeah, when I started comedy, I just knew that this was different. And it's been four years and I don't love it any less. (laughs) I just love it. I was telling my therapist too, I feel like it's like, like some like edging, you know, it's like, I kind of like, I've, I've been, and I do this a lot and I see it in myself and part of it, I kind of don't want to change because I think it actually, when I finally arrive somewhere, whether that's a relationship, uh, anything sort of in my life, that's an identity, either an identity an element of my identity or like a pursuit. Like I don't, I don't arrive at it directly. I never let go. That's the thing I want. And then just take the straight path to it. I sort of like, I don't know. It's like, you know, when I look at like my dating life, it's like to arrive at somebody who actually like has his life together, but is also like creative and interesting. What I would do is, you know, like hook up with an 18 year old kid who, you know, paints like garage doors and like works at Urban Outfitters. And then in the same month, like a 68 year old, like sugar daddy who wanted to like save the oceans, like down in Florida, you know, it's like, I have to sort of like, go into the extremes and then sort of like find my way back and I feel like comedy was sort of similar like I was doing very like outlandish sort of like theater and all the stuff that was a li- probably a little too like disconnected from myself and then I started writing fiction and all the characters had elements of me but they weren't really me so I was sort of like getting at the actual story a bunch of different ways <laughs> um and then eventually was like oh all I have to do is actually tell it. (laughs) It's like, why am I like creating characters who live in New York who are like struggling with their job at the big ad agency? Like, why don't I just, and my stories are good. They were good enough to get published, but it just wasn't, everything was sort of coming at it from an indirect angle. And I think for the first time I was sort of like, no, everything just kind of speaks for itself and I should just stand up and say it. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I also go like extremes. Like I was a church lady for three years. Like I, cause when I do something and I commit to it, whether even if I don't commit to it for the rest of my life in the time that I'm committed to it, I'm given like 110%. Like I didn't listen to anything but Christian music. I wouldn't watch movies over PG PG. I read the Bible. I tried to live as closely to it as I could. Um, I couldn't really, do the whole let my husband run the household because he was an idiot, but I did it as much <laughs> as I could. Um, and so I, I like swung so deep into it that I gave my best friend that I've had since high school a pamphlet on Christian dating. And I don't even <laughs> remember doing it. I, I, that's how I wrapped up in it I was. But then when I stopped being religious, I swung so far the other way to just like militant atheist, like nothing is real. And you know, you're all idiots. And then now I've kind of swung back to the middle where I like dabble with, um, you know, crystals and, and uh, like spirituality and, and tarot cards and shit like that, to where I'm at least more open minded now. Um, and I did the same thing with like, like when I started when I started getting high and going on stage high, you know, like for the first three years, I was just like nothing. And then I went to just like, I was super stoned just all the time. And then now I've kind of come back to the middle. And um, I was so structured when I first started comedy, because I do have like accounting side of me. 
that it was making it unfun because I was like, I have to say every word exactly like I planned. And if I don't, I get like, I'm like, oh, I fucked it up. And it was stressing me out to be on stage because I wasn't doing it right um, in my own head. And so I, I swung to like, just not planning anything and just going up there and just like seeing what comes out of my mouth. <laughs> um, and so now I think I'm ready to kind of swing back to the middle of a little bit of planning with a little bit of, of being free to say what I want and maybe just a little bit of weed. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think that makes, and it's not everyone for everyone. I think a lot of that comes from a life where you have had so many, it's like at some point you create those extremes, but I also guarantee that they were created for you in some part of your life, right? Like I don't blame myself for seeking out extremes because my experience was that, right? Like I grew up homeschooled in a fundamentalist Christian household with no exposure to the outside world and then ended up going to a wealthy college prep school and university. And it's like, those are extremes. Like if you want extremes, you've got them right there. Like no, no sex education, no role for women show up in a school where all half the freshman class has already had plastic surgery already has had set, you know, so it's like, I kind of saw those extremes already. So it's perfectly natural for me to sort of seek them out to try to find what the middle ground is. Um, Cause that's kind of how I got here in the first place is by being like, okay, this is not what I want, but I don't know if I want like Hollywood extreme sort of like, I don't give a fuck about anything either. So I had to kind of like yeah. land somewhere and that was forced upon me. I didn't really ask for those two crazy polar opposite lifestyles. They just sort of got handed to me. It really wasn't until my yeah, mid, probably, well, let's be honest, late 20s, early 30s, where I started sorting through how crazy those two different lives and worlds were. They were very different. <laughs> yeah, I uh, in high school, I thought I was gonna be a writer and a journalist. Um, and I really got into Hunter S. Thompson and, you know, he's extreme. Um, but, you know, he said that um, to really truly write about something in a way that's going to make other people feel that they're there, you know, and really be able to experience the experience that you're writing about, you have to have experienced it yourself. So I kind of just set out to have as many experiences as possible and just was really open to whatever and kind of, um, yeah, I had, I tried to have as many experiences as possible. And then I became a mom. Um, and I have, I have four children. So, um, that's an experience for sure. But then, you know, once you have kids, it's like, you got to do what's best for the kids. You can't just go do whatever experience you freaking want. Um, and so now that my kids are grown, I'm, I, I kind of like, I, I left, I went to Nebraska for a couple months. I lived in my SUV, um, from like May to December of last year. So about seven months, I went to Nebraska for a couple months. And then when I didn't like Nebraska, I just left and I came to Denver because Denver's where I really wanted to be. I was just scared to come to a big city and get overwhelmed with trying to survive in the big city. So I lived in my SUV for like, you know, the first five months or so I was here and I would have continued, honestly, if I'd have like a van that was equipped to live in through the winter, I would have kept living in it. I didn't, people were really like concerned, like, oh, you live in your SUV? Are you, you know, but I had a job. I didn't have to live in my SUV. It was a 
completely yeah. my choice. I wasn't homeless because I couldn't afford to have a place to live. <laughs> um, and they were like, you want to sleep on my couch? And are you okay? And I'm like, no, I, I want to sleep. No, my SUV's got all my stuff in it. Like, I, I don't want to sleep on your couch. It sounds very uncomfortable. I'd rather just sleep in my SUV in the Planet Fitness parking lot. Thanks. And people just couldn't, <laughs> people couldn't understand it. They were just like, what? Um, you live in your car? And, but it was so, there was so much freedom. And so I'm trying to get back to, I want to get a van um, and put solar panels and um, I'm waiting for my federal return to be returned to me from my student loans that they took it and I'll get it back now thanks to COVID. So thank, I guess, you know, silver lining. Um, <laughs> and so when I get that back, I want to buy a van and then I got to fix it up and stuff. Um, so I'm hoping by, by the time I have the festival, hopefully by July 1st, I have a van equipped to live in and I just live in my van and, you know, however, however long I want to, you know, it's just like, you know, my, my, my best friend from high school is like, you can't just live in a van forever. I was like, why not? Why not? Why can't I? Um, why do I need a place that I'm never home in normal life? I'm not here. It's just a place where my crap is and I sleep. Why spend the money on rent? It doesn't make any sense for me in my life. I mean, I'm sure when I get old, eventually I won't be able to live in a van anymore, but sure. And that, when I don't want to live in a van anymore, I won't. I'll find a place to live. It's like not that well, yeah, everything sort of material is changeable, you know, like, yeah. and a lot of what's not is as well. I mean, I've enjoyed the domesticity somewhat of this time, just because again, it's not something that I, I associate it with being trapped and being sort of indoctrinated, I guess, being at home. So I don't typically love it. Um, but when I moved to Philly, I got a smoking deal in this apartment. Like my cats love it. Like it is great for having people over. So I have had a lot of like fun parties with other comics or like, you know, 420 dinner parties and stuff like that. So it is a good space for that. I've been enjoying it for the last six weeks. I've baked. I'm actually a pretty good, like I have all those skills. I just want to use them because I want to, not because I'm being forced to, you know, <laughs> like. Yeah, I don't entertain. I don't have people over. Um, my home is, is where I go to not be around people. And I did have, I got really lucky on this place that I'm at, um, that my rent is cheap. My roommates are super chill and I don't have, I haven't had any issues. I've been here since December and there's not been one issue with my roommates or anything. And it's in a good area of Denver, um, so I did get very, very, very lucky. And hopefully when I do move from here, I can, I can get like somebody I know into this space that also, you know, is going to get along with my roommates because they're super cool. And I wouldn't want, I feel bad. Like, I don't want them to end up with, cause they're, they're, they're young, you know, they're in their late twenties, 25, 26, and, and they've had some shitty roommate experiences. So, but, um, yeah, I just, uh, I moved around a lot as a child um, because my dad was a roofer and he would chase the storm. And then when he got, you know, a year's worth of work in one place, we'd move there. So I moved every single year of my life um, from, you know, like five to eighth grade. Um, just like, not just across town, but like states and cities. And I was always the new kid in school. And then even when we settled in Wichita in eighth grade, you know, I went to eighth grade for one school then I spent half a high school at one high school and half at the other. So I've never gone to a school more than three semesters. And so sometimes when that happens to people like my siblings, 
um, I have three brothers and um, two of them are really into like steadiness because of it. You know, they, they don't like change because of it. They want to keep things the same. And me and my other brother are just like nomadic. And we, even when I lived in Wichita, I moved. I couldn't, I can't stand to live in one place for more than a year. So it just makes sense for me, for my home to be mobile. If I don't like where I'm at, I just leave. Yeah. Yeah. No, it does make sense. It is funny though, how siblings will pick up, you know, kids will pick up on patterns and either go the same or the opposite. <laughs> I'm definitely the opposite one just because I have moved around and sort of, again, trying to find the balance. I think my personality probably is somewhere towards the middle. I, I do like having a place where I can entertain and bring people. And I am sort of the grand hostess when I want to be. But I also don't, again, want to be told that I have to stay here or like in tra trapped indefinitely, you know, like yeah. if something comes up tomorrow, like it would be cool to go somewhere else. And I've lived a lot of cities and each, like on the one hand, it's kind of sad because I'll look and be like, oh God, I really, I knew some great people in New York, you know, in the like writing scene, I miss them or all my friends in Phoenix. And we were like the lone liberals and this crazy, like state that was going through all this weird political and immigration stuff and I miss people but it's sort of like I also have a place everywhere I can go <laughs> where I'll know somebody you know yeah. Um, yeah I have that from traveling and doing comedy and then this festival and stuff and I, I've done a festival I did the festival last year in Wichita I did a different festival it was kind of like a satellite um the Lady Laughs comedy festival which happens in Madison Wisconsin um, so if you're ever like, check that out, you, it's, it's a great, great, it's a great festival. And Madison is, I don't know if you've ever been to Madison, Wisconsin. No, I've been to Milwaukee, but not Madison. My, I have two good friends in there and they keep telling me that I need to go. Madison is adorable. It re really reminds me of like a small Denver with no weed, but they, but, but <laughs> um, yeah, I love Madison. It's such an adorable, like I thought about moving there at one point, but um, it's so expensive. I was like, if I'm going to spend that much money, I'll just move to Denver. But um, I love Madison. But yeah, it's a great festival. So I did that two years ago. And then I did the Art of Female Comedy Festival this year. And I've just tried to travel. Like I'll just, just travel and go do mics and stuff. I just meet comedians all over the place. So I have a lot of connections all over the country. I've, I've managed to make some connections with a lot of like three or four women that are older or my age or a little older who have like husbands that make good livings. And so they have like houses with guest rooms. And I have a friend in Portland that has a guest room and a parking spot for her guests, which is like huge. So I had plans to go do all that. So someday, but I do like, yeah. Um, but to get back on point of what we're supposed to be talking about, I, uh, this is why I, I, I a lot more than an hour because I end up doing this. Um, so like the art of female comedy, the art of comedy, the nonprofit, I think that getting people into comedy, whether they end up actually going on stage, just taking the classes, um, it's just comedy has helped me so much as a, as a, as a woman really to just, I got into it at a really low point, which I found is a trend for a lot of people that I've been talking to. Like, uh, it was like the lowest point probably of my life that I've had is when comedy found me really, I didn't seek it out. It just kind of, it happened. And, um, you know, it's just helped me 
help me with my confidence, help me, you know, um, rebuild my confidence back to where it used to be when I was younger. And um, just even if I don't make jokes about my trauma, it's just helped me look at the world in a different way to where, um, cause like my, I have one tattoo that I got like six months in. It's my very first tattoo. And it says, at least I got some good material. So <laughs> I like that, that. that really sums up what comedy has done for me because no matter what happens to me or I have a breakup or something happens, I always get material out of it. And so I'm like, well, at least I got some good material, you know? And so that kind of mentality is what comedy has done for me. Um, so yeah, if you could just talk a little bit about like what, yeah, like what comedy has done for you in the short time you've been in it. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't say that it was my lowest point. I feel like it was maybe the middle, which again, for me is probably not a bad thing. <laughs> I think, I think taking something on when I'm at my lowest point actually for me probably guarantees that I don't complete it, you know, because I'm doing it for me, just my personality, dedication and commitment comes from like having a little bit of ground to stand on. Um, so I think for me, it actually was, I was sort of like, I loved Philly. I was like, I was starting, I was, had a great therapist. Like I was starting to kind of work through some stuff. And like I said, my fiction was feeling very unsatisfying. So I'd been writing fiction for about four years. I had six short stories published. And again, it always sort of felt like I was getting at the truth, but not totally like through it like I wanted to nail the truth to the wall you know like and it wasn't that it was like the themes were all there you know religious indoctrin indoctrination the body technology you know um sort of the female pleasure and like excess and vices and all the things that I that I talk about but there were all other characters it was like Cynthia walks through the streets of Manhattan <laughs> and I think the ability to use an I statement either an I statement or my opinion and my point of view is probably the biggest victory. I've done that in business for a long time. I've done that in bar conversations with my friends, but I've never stood in front of strangers and said, this is what happened to me. This is what I think. Yeah. That's it. You know, like no cloaking in a character, no like long plot development. Like this is the raw sort of like truth of how I feel and what I've been through. Um, and it's kind of gotten me to say some things out loud that I honestly hadn't said again, except in private. It's sort of like a private to public transition. Like I've told friends and therapists that like, I believe the environment I was raised in was a cult, but I'd never said that word out loud in front of strangers. <laughs> I had never talked about the impact of being a minister's daughter out loud. So some of the things that I talk about pretty heavily in my comedy or even like, you know, sexual abuse and trauma, like there's certain things that I've said quietly and intimately, but never out loud. And to name it is to make it real, you know? So I think like being able to say out loud, yeah, this was a cult. And when I start to describe it, people will go like, yeah, that was like, you know, or people will come up to me afterwards and go, oh my God, I was homeschooled by my Christian parents too. And that was totally how I felt. And I thought I was the only one. And so yeah, naming it has given me the sense that, yeah, like I'm not crazy, you know, like I've been sort of the victim of gaslighting many times in my life of like, no, you didn't, what you imagine is not actually, it's just what you imagine, it's not real. And I think to be able to name it out loud and say it has just given me the ability to like feel so much less anxious about what's happened to me, but then also that next level experience of bonding with other people. Yeah, to, to bond in a, in a mutual experience, whether it's, positive or negative is a very strong thing because 
you can feel like when you're in the throes of a trauma or you're in the throes of depression or anxiety or whatever it is, it does feel like you're the only one feeling this and that you're, you know, you're crazy and that. So like, yeah, being able to go up there and like share your experiences and have feedback immediately because they're laughing, you know, that's some immediate feedback. And then when you come off stage and um, I love when women come up to me and they're like, Oh my God, that, you know, uh, I related to your comedy so much and blah, 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 blah. And it just, it feels like, Oh, okay. I'm not the only one um, experiencing this. And I think like when it comes to like, like domestic abuse or, um, you know, even, whether it's physical or mental or verbal or whatever, uh, emotional, it can feel like embarrassing. Cause like, like very few people are like, yeah, I totally thought I was going to be the victim of domestic abuse, you know? So <laughs> when it's happening, you, you're embarrassed. You're embarrassed that it's happening. You're embarrassed that you let, like you let it happen to you. And so you don't want to tell people and you just stop telling people what's going on and you don't, you pretend everything's okay because you're embarrassed that you're not leaving this person and you can't even understand why you're not leaving them and why you're allowing it. Um, Cause I was with somebody for six years that was very emotionally and, and, you know, mentally verbally abusive. And um, now that I look back on it, it felt, it almost felt cult like, like he was a cult leader and, but I was the only member of the cult. Uh, mm -hmm. Just when I start seeing like what, like reading about cults and what cult leaders do to break people down and to get them indoctrinated and do that, it really felt like he was training me you know, over six years. Um, and I feel like I'm a fairly strong minded, strong willed person that doesn't take shit from anybody. So after six years of that, like I was completely broken down to where I was like, like at a loss for who I really was. And I was embarrassed that I spent that much time with that person. Um, so that's when I found comedy was after all of that. And yeah, comedy really, it did it help, help build me back up to the level I was before I met him and even higher. Um, and it's spilled over into the confidence it's given me is spilled over into all the aspects, aspects of my life, but especially when it comes to like dating and men and what I'm willing to deal with and put up with. And, you know, it's really, um, I've never had a whole lot of self-worth when it comes to that, even in high school, like, uh, you know, I just, I just would accept less than I deserved because I felt like that's all I could get. You know what I mean? And, um, so comedy, it's completely comedy that has helped me be like, no, I deserve better, you know? And then also like the network and the community of women that I have come in contact with as a comedian, um, just strong, beautiful, funny, amazing women, um, has been just so helpful um, in, in helping rebuild, you know, everything that I, I lost inside. Yeah, no, I totally, yeah, I definitely relate to that. And I think for me, it was sort of like the child that I was, you know, cause it happened so early, all of this sort of indoctrination that like, but I have a lot of writings from when I was really young. And I'm actually, by the way, working on my memoir right now. That is one thing that I'm excited that I started during quarantine. Like, will I finish it? Probably not, but I have, 
three or four chapters and it all incorporates like my writing and journal entries and poems and all the stuff that I wrote when I was homeschooled kind of early years. Some of it's really funny. Some of it's really sad. There are like notes of some emotional and physical mistreatment in there. Um, but overall, just looking at it, I was like, holy shit, like I've always coped with my environment by expressing myself. The difference is there. I had a very, you know, it's like almost like my there, my stage or my audience was just a piece of paper. And I, of course, had a name for my journal because I had nobody to talk to. So I was like, dear sky, you know, then it was like, oh, maybe I'll tell a few friends and ooh, now maybe I'll write a story or I'll talk in front of 10 people at a party. And it's like now here I am potentially saying it to, you know, thousands of people over the course of a year. So it's like slowly been sort of kind of getting to that point. And it's funny because I think I've had a few men in my life make a suggestion that somehow like this, the microphone or jokes are like revenge. And it's like, that may be true, but also when have I ever had the opportunity for safe revenge? Like, why wouldn't I take it? You know, my last uh, boyfriend, we started dating around the time that I started comedy. And then we broke up about three, four months ago. And one of the last things he said to me is that he was like, oh, Christine, your comedy is really unflattering. Uh, it makes you look like a person who makes bad choices. And I was like thinking to myself, I really can't wait for you to hear what I say about you on stage in two months. You know, it's like, you're obviously not very this is not very thought out because the first thing I'm going to do and the first thing I did do is at an open mic later that week, tell that. And I'm like, no, I think the person who should be unflattered is you. <laughs> and by the way, I'm about to say some words that I hadn't said before. I'm newly single and everybody clapped and whatever. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like, no, no, it's not unflattering to me. It's unflattering to the men that I'm describing who did this to me. <laughs> I, yeah, I Sorry. I, uh... I am a person who's made bad decisions. Um, <laughs> I have, I've made lots of bad decisions in my life, uh, dating and otherwise a lot, a lot of bad dating, pretty much every dating decision has been bad uh, <laughs> for the most part. Uh, I, I relatable. Yeah. <laughs> but I've learned from it and I've grown from it and um, you know, everyone's going to make bad decisions, but if you learn from it and you grow from it, then, you know, that's just been my journey. And I, you know, yeah, there was a lot of shame, a lot of shame to my bad decisions, especially with the last long-term relationship, you know, like, why did I let that happen to me? Why did I do that? And it's not that I'm trying to take the, the responsibility off of me and put it onto the men necessarily, because I did choose to date them and I did choose to allow them to continue to treat me that way. But I think that comedy has helped me just really analyze things in a different way that I, I had it before and just really helped me realize that, that these people, that these kind of, of, of men seek out certain kind of women, you know what I mean? Like, like predators, like, you know, they're like, there's certain, there's certain personality traits I have that they see in me and they know are going, cause I'm a very nurturing person and I want to help people and I want to fix people. I want to make people feel better when they feel bad. And um, predator men exploit that in na that natural thing that I have in me. Um, and so now I've kind of, um, I've taken all that energy that I poured into men or that I poured into my children, nurturing and loving them 
And, you know, I put it back on myself a little to take care of myself. And I put it into comedy because comedy is my, my, my soulmate, my true love. And so I put it into comedy and now I'm, I'm putting it into my friends and I'm putting it into other female comics because, and that's, that's kind of the catalyst for what started the nonprofit is because I do have all this like love to give and all this nurturing to give. And I just, I've had to, <clears throat> comedy has really helped me focus it and realize how to give it to people that deserve it um, versus just everybody that needs it because there's so many scumbags out there that yeah they need someone to take care of them but they don't give anything back and so yeah i mean it's in a weird way not to make it sound so business-like but i've started to see it honestly just like in terms of return on investment it's like look at the end of the day maybe someone paying it back to me isn't always the immediate goal, but if some gain is going to come out of it, whether it's them moving on to feel confident in themselves and actually using it to grow or get a better job or do all these things, the problem with certain investments, particularly in men, is it doesn't actually create gains, right? For anyone, for themselves or for you, it just ends up creating this sort of like status quo where if anything things deteriorate over time because <laughs> one person is doing all the heavy lifting, you know? So it's like, that's what's made me sad. If I looked back and I could see that some of the men that I'd invested so much time or money or energy into had actually turned around and like, I don't know, gotten their feet or taken better care of their kids or, you know, pursued their dreams with passion and discipline. Like, yeah, that would be worth it. The problem is they're still living with their parents or they're still abusive or whatever like it didn't change anything <laughs> you know so I think put, yeah putting your time and your energy in places where at least you know it's going to grow into something it's like a freaking savings account or retirement account or something like <laughs> a new theme with me and dating lately is that I don't stay with people very long I walk away pretty quick when I'm not getting the return that I want um but I've had I, in the last year, I've had three men, when I'm breaking up with them, thank me for different things. I had the first one that it happened, um, he was like, see, but I get material out of it. So that's my return. <laughs> like, if I get material out of it, it was all worth it. Um, but he thanked me for, like, while we were breaking up, um, like he said that he found the silver lining in it because we were breaking up and I was moving to Denver and it wasn't necessarily something that we both wanted, but it was something that needed to happen. And so um, he said, you know, that he wanted to thank me for, for waking him up from, you know, his, his depression he had and making him feel like he was lovable again and that someone could love him and, and all this stuff. And I was just like, Oh, good for you. Like, what, what do I get out of this? And he was like, you get the satisfaction of knowing you help someone. And I was like, Oh, great. Good for me. I've helped yet another man. Meanwhile, I'm left with nothing. Okay. I'm worse off than when I met you because men just take and take and take and give nothing back. And he was just like, Whoa, and I was just like, that's the truth. It's like, I'm glad you're better off, but I am not better off. I was better off before I met you. Um, 
but yeah, I got material out of it. So I ended up being okay. <laughs> but like you said before, at some point, you don't need more material. So maybe yeah. we'll find things that are good for ourselves and then pull all the material from all the past. There's plenty, there's already enough. Yeah, I have plenty of dating material. I don't need any more dating material. I have been trying to write um, more material about like my childhood and like my parents and like growing up uh, in the Pentecostal religion and having, uh, my grandfather was a preacher and, you know, just the craziness of Pentecostals and they're speaking in tongues and, um, which is hard because like if people don't understand what that is, you have to like educate them a little bit before they'll get the joke. Um, but yeah, no, I've got, I've got some really good, I've got some really, really good jokes about, about being Pentecostal that I love because they, I've been trying to get to where I move around on stage more and I act out more because like in my normal talking, like I talk with my hands, I'm very, you know, charismatic and I'm, I'm, I'm energetic and I move around a lot and I'm loud. But when I get on stage, you know, I was just like, and that's, and so I've been trying to bring more of like me into being on stage um, and talk about something other than men and dating and relationships because I have, I have so much material about that already. Um, you know, and I have a lot of material about my kids. I'd say half my solid, solid material is about my children. Uh -huh. um, kids are a great, they're a great source of material and they're relate, people can relate to it. And I, I, I have these kid jokes so that, you know, um, cause when I first started all my jokes were just filth, mm -hmm. which is just, you can't say that to every audience. You can't talk about what your vagina looks like to every <laughs> audience and I learned that in a show in Topeka Kansas when these people these older white conservative people just stared at me like with no response just and I was just like okay well all I have is filth so here you go but now I have like an arsenal built up to where I can be like I can I can have like okay I have a 15 minute set here's three different 15 minute sets I have and then I can walk in there and I can I'll go, I always like to get somewhere early if I don't know the place and I've never been there before. And I kind of just watch the audience and I'll even change what I'm going to do. Like I'll watch the comedians before me, you know, and I'll, I'll be like, okay, well, they don't like dirty jokes. So we're doing the kid material. You know what I mean? So it's nice to have like a variety of material because there's a variety of different crowds and some material suitable for that. And some's not. So I'm trying to, I want to, I want to write more material about anything else other than love and relationships and dating and sex. Yeah. I mean, it's a natural place to go first. I mean, I definitely, I don't have clean material, but I also haven't had situations where I've had to use it because I'm in a big city, you know, um, I've performed elsewhere. So I, I did a set in Vegas, um, in December, but that was Vegas. Yeah. I've New York, um, even in Phoenix, I was at the, like, you know, the amateurs night basically at the big club. So I haven't had to yet. <laughs> Even my uh, kid material isn't clean. I'm talking about my kid Googling naked girls when he's seven or, um, <laughs> you know, things like that. Even my kid material isn't really that, isn't what people consider clean. It's, it's maybe P, some of it's maybe PG 13 for sure. 
Um, but like there's a, the comedy works here has like a clean contest and you can't say damn, you know what I mean? It's like, it's clean. It needs I don't to, know if I, I don't know if I could do that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I want to just because it's a challenge. I know that when I try to tell comedy like that, even if the crowd likes it and they're laughing, it doesn't feel as good to me because it's not authentic to who I am because I'm not a clean person. I cuss a lot. I have a very dark sense of humor, you know, and I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily enjoy that kind of comedy. So it doesn't feel as good to me to tell it, but it's, it's something that is, I see the value in having it in my wheelhouse and I would really like to get into like corporate comedy where I'm telling jokes at noon on a Saturday at a, at a conference for, you know, their workers and that needs to be clean. Um, there's a lot of money to be made there and there is a, um, need for more women to do it. So, but it's just, it's really hard for me cause that's just not how my brain works. Yeah. But it's how my brain used to work for years. Cause I was religious, you know, for three years. Um, so if I could like tap back into that, I mean, I like, I've even thought about just like, just like going back, not to church, not cause I care or believe in it, but just, just to kind of like be back in that environment to where I have to think about what I say and this, like seeing if I can work some material. <laughs> like, not a bad idea. And there are plenty of virtual church services now where you could. <laughs> yeah, I want to go in person so I can talk to these people at their little ice cream socials and like work some like clean jokes on them <laughs> while I'm doing, because that's how I write a lot of my material. I'm just talking to people and I'm telling them a story or I'm saying, talking about, I'm telling them about a breakup and I say it funny and then I write it down. So for me to really write clean, I need to go into a clean environment, interact with clean people. Yeah. And then see if I can make them laugh in a clean way. And then I can write that clean stuff down. So I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I, won't, I won't be returning to church anytime soon. <laughs> but yeah. Too soon, Phil. Too soon. But well. I, I can remember what it was like to be censored. All I have to do is go back and look at those old journal entries and it's right there. It's like I say things like, oh, dang. And like, you know, <laughs> I wasn't that censored as a child. I mean, I grew up religious, but my parents didn't like shove it down my throat. Um, they believe it. They're pretty liberal Christians. Uh, I call my mom a red letter Christian because she kind of focuses on like what Jesus said. Like if Jesus didn't say anything about it, like she doesn't, she doesn't, she doesn't she's completely supportive of the queer community and stuff. Cause she's like, Jesus, if it was that important that gays, not people not be gay, Jesus would have said something about it and he didn't. Yeah. And so she really focuses on Jesus's words. And so, um, but you know, that's not, that's not the environment that my father grew up in. That's not my grandparents. Um, but it really wasn't pounded into me like that. It wasn't, we didn't go to church like that. Like I chose as an adult to get into it, into the level that I did, um, because I was trying to not be a drug addict. And then my husband at the time that I, my first husband was also trying to not be a drug addict. And we got pregnant with my third child. It's a long story. He's not the father of my first two children, but anyway, so I got pregnant with my third child out of wedlock. And I was like, 
you know, my mom's religion did push me to get married because I never would like, I got married because I'm, my parents were just so upset that I was mm-hmm. having another baby without being married. And so I was like, I'll get married. And so we got married and got into religion because, um, we wanted, we, we basically traded drugs for Jesus and just got high on Jesus for three years. Um, I mean, it makes sense. That's how my dad started, you know, um, leaving this crazy sixties and seventies and going to this very extreme organization. So I think a lot of people end up there. Uh, but yeah, I think our lives are very similar. I've also gotten married under some sort of pressure, parental pressure and, and, uh, dress might be a little strong, but, uh, definitely had I had my own wits about me, I would not have made some of those choices, but I didn't want to lose, you know, I didn't want to get cut off or, you know, sort of put outside of the family approval. I was, I still cared about that at that time. So totally get it. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, I'm never getting, probably never getting married again. If I do, like, I literally will do it on my own without speaking to a single person. <laughs> now, I've been married three times. Uh, first time you have me beat by one (laughs) yeah the first time was for because I got pregnant um and we were actually broke up I got I found that I was pregnant we were broke up and we got back together and got married um by the time I had my first my child with him I'd only I'd only known him for 11 months and we'd been married for five (laughs) so it was not normal. Um, and then my second marriage was because I don't even, I can't, I was just, it was a mental breakdown and I'd only been dating him for like six weeks. Um, we did go to high school together. So it wasn't like I didn't know him, but I hadn't met, I hadn't seen him in like a decade and he just said all the right things. And he was a nightmare. It was a, it did not last very long. Um, but I got married to him in secret. Like I didn't even tell my children who were in middle school and high school at the time that I got married. Um, and then it was disastrous and it ended fairly quickly. And then my third marriage, uh, was to save taxes because we were going to be together. I thought anyway, and it just made more financial sense to be married. So romantic. Um, (laughs) and that did the actual marriage did not last a year. So, you know, I, 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 if I, if I found someone that I really, really loved, I just, there would have to be some sort of benefit to being married other than love. Yeah. But 100%. I wouldn't, would not marry somebody again that I didn't just like absolutely love. And I knew they loved me, but there would have to be some other reason to get married. Like we were going to buy a business together or a house or some sort of like practical reason that I need to get the state involved and have this contract of marriage. Um, cause I can live with somebody and be committed to them forever without being married. I don't need, I don't yeah. need it. It doesn't mean anything to me as I've proven three yeah. times. Yeah, no, six, twice. So yeah, if I don't want to be with you, I'm leaving. I don't give a shit. There's nothing that's going to stop me. There's <laughs> nothing that's going to stop me. I don't care if we have children together. I don't care if we own property together. I don't, there is nothing that's going to stop me from leaving somebody if I don't want to be with them anymore. So What's the freaking point? I'm yeah. getting married. I don't need paper to stay and I don't need paper to go. <laughs> yeah. No, I'll throw a ring on and call myself your wife without actually getting married. You know, I like wearing a wedding ring. I don't know why. <laughs> um, 
And society does, like when I moved to Denver, I put on a fake wedding ring so they would think I was married because it makes you look more stable. It makes you look more able to commit and society just sees that ring and sees like, you know, it may, it, it, society has all these, you know, ideas of what it means to be married. And so when they see that you're married, you're automatically more stable, you're more able to commit, you know, you know, some, you, you're a family person, they're more likely to give you the job, they're more likely to give you a raise, because like, well, you're a married person with a family, you need more money than some single person um, living by themselves. And so I wore a fake wedding ring for job interviews. A lot. Interesting. Hadn't thought about that strategy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was in HR, so I know. True. I mean, I was a. I was. I also had those beliefs for a long time. Like I would see a wedding ring on, and I had those beliefs for a long time. So, um, just because I don't believe them anymore, I still know how the majority of people believe. So, but yeah, this has been a great talk. I think we can end it there. Um, these conversations have not exactly been going the way, like in my brain, I planned when it happened, but it's just, I'm, it's been a great to just meet people and discuss their different experiences. And, um, and that's kind of a goal of the nonprofit too, is I just want to get more voices out there because there's so many different experiences that we have um, as women. And then when you start getting into the queer community and stuff, there's just so many different voices that, you know, we haven't heard from everyone thinks like a gay person, like all gay people seem to think the same and have the same values um, and the same, you know, and it's totally not true at all. There's just as with anything, there's so many different voices. And that's, that's kind of one of my like grander schemes of this. It's like, sure, if they don't do anything with the classes, um, that's not necessarily a failure or anything. But yeah, and like my, when I daydream about it, I just, I, I daydream about just like kind of taking over comedy with the others, as I call them, you know, pretty much anybody but a cisgendered straight male. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> There's enough of that voice, you know. No, if you, oh, I, it's hilarious. There's a woman named... Um, God, why is her name escaping me right now? Kathy, Kathy Goodwin. Um, and she's going to be on a few, well, she's going to be on my virtual sex ed comedy show next month because she has a bunch of really hilarious jokes about buying sex toys at her age, which is really funny. She's like 68 or something. Um, but she went on an open mic a few weeks ago on one of the virtual ones. And she was like, I went to my first open mic. And she's like, and I heard eight dick jokes in a row and everyone just like started laughing because it's like, yes, Kathy, that is what comedy has, is and often, you know, like, but to her, she was like so surprised. It's like she was almost like it was less a joke and more her like trying to like check in to see if that was like normal. And we're like, yes, that is normal. The fact that it was only eight in a row is actually consider yourself fortunate. Yeah. Like nine on on nine eleven one year, I was still in Wichita, and I went. There was a mic that happened on nine eleven, and it was me and seventeen white guys, uh, seventeen cisgender street males uh, that were white as well. I think maybe there was one African American, but um, but yeah, there was no other females. There was no queer people. There was nothing, and literally nine in a row did a nine eleven joke that just totally bombed but I can't imagine 
being that ninth dude and being like, no, my joke's going to be the funny one. And then finally the 10th guy had a good joke because he just made fun of the other nine people and their jokes. And um, so I'm, I'm really, man, it's going to be so bad when this is over all the hot takes on COVID and quarantine that, and they're going to just get up there. Like if I have a joke premise and somebody does it before me, when I get up there, I don't do it unless I really feel that mine was a completely different take on the subject. I will scrap it at that mic, maybe work on it on a different mic. But if I, yeah, one person tells a joke that's similar to a joke I was planning to tell, I don't tell that joke. Oh yeah, for sure. But there's a weird competition with men. Or I'll say something like, you know what you've heard? I actually will call it out sometimes. Like at a mic, not necessarily at a show, that's different, but like at a mic. Well, you've already heard about, I don't know, 18 men talk about porn tonight. Well, I guarantee I'm going to give you a different take. And then people will just listen automatically because they're like, oh, she's right. We did hear that like a thousand times. No wonder we were tuned out, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, it's, it's a very man thing to do to not pivot and not like be aware that the audience actually, to be sensitive to the dynamics, the audience might actually be fatigued and that, yeah, your take is not going to be so earth shatteringly different, you know? <laughs> like yeah. they all think they're the one. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The chosen one. Chosen one. Well this is a lot of fun. Thank you. It's I enjoyed I feel like we have a lot of sim- similar uh life experiences, mistakes, quote unquote, that we're now gonna turn into some good stuff. And yeah, let me know if you if you ever want me to like vouch for the value of classes. Um I'm happy to do that because yeah, for me, I mean, I, I really believe that it was valuable and I don't think it's necessary. My instructor was great, but I don't think it's instructor specific necessarily. I think the act of going through some education, being forced to write, being forced to perform before you go out into the world is a good thing. So. We all have our own journey. Um, and, you know, comedy is an art form and there are people that just paint on their own and learn, or there's people that learn music and learn guitar on their own. And there's people that take classes to learn guitar. And so we all have kind of our own journey that we need to take, but it, it doesn't lessen your value as a comedian. Like there's some people, mostly men that are just like, Oh no, you gotta just pay your dues and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and, um, you know, we all have our own journey in the world and in comedy and everything. And some people's journey um, starts in a comedy class. And I, I definitely see the benefit of it. If I had, if I had had it available to me in Wichita and had the money to do it, um, I would have taken a class, maybe not to get started, but at some point I still have not completely ruled out taking you know, like I'd like to take the class that I want to send people to, you know? So I still haven't completely ruled that out. I, I know that I have stuff to learn from Christy Buckley because she's been in it for a long time and she's a professional and she's, I really respect her as a comedian. Um, so yeah, so I, I, st- I, I totally see the value in, we take classes to learn every other art form. People yeah. take acting classes you know why or an internship in a job like it's not like you don't just like get dumped into the workforce and just like it's the argument of not doing it is sort of like saying like oh like don't actually like 
get a degree, take any online trainings or certifications or do any internships, just like show up at the specialized trade and be good. And it's not to say you can't there. Are, of course there are self-taught people or, you know, you learn from other, you know, your father who's been in the business forever or whatever, but like there's, yeah, there's definitely no shame or harm in learning from an expert to, before you try something brand new. <laughs> Taking a class doesn't negate your talent. You know what I mean? If you're not funny, if you're not talented as a comedian or an actor or whatever, you can take all the classes you want. But if you don't have it, you don't have it. Um, yeah. So it doesn't make, it doesn't, in fact, if anything, I feel it's a benefit. If I find someone's taking a class, I see them, I take them more seriously because I'm like, they are committed to the craft. They're committed to their art enough to, to spend money and time, you know, taking a class. So I, I actually see it as like a, an, a yeah, a bonus. A sure. benefit. Not to mention the fact that it's also a source of revenue and income for those comics that teach. Right. So it does end up helping like a lot of my established friends like this guy Che, but a bunch of other people, that's a lot of how they make money and supplement gig money. And even right now, some of them are doing uh, virtual like mentorships yeah. stuff online. So, I mean, the end of the day, like Che was able to teach and patch, pass on his, the thing that he loves, you know, to somebody else and get paid for it. I mean, it kind of sort of a That's like a secondary like layer of the nonprofit too, is because I do want to like recruit people that want to teach, um, that have the ability to, that have before, maybe they want to, and they just haven't really been able to find the outlet for it. They don't have the business side of it to get like students and stuff. And to be able to recruit teachers um, that are in the communities I'm trying to help. So females and queer and, you know, um, things like that. And maybe not troubled youth, but like people that used to be troubled youth. Um, yeah. And then th that will give them a source of income that they can rely on too as a comedian. So that's like a secondary like layer of things too. Yeah, I love that. All right. Well, this has been great. I really hope we get to see each other in July. I Oh, I need another trip to the dispensary. <laughs> you, know, and, you know, if you want to send me, I think we've been, we're Facebook friends, right? Like if you want to invite me to whatever shows you have, I'd love to come watch. Yeah, yeah, totally. I'll send you the one for tonight. That might be too late in the game, but I'll send it to you for tonight. And then definitely the one in May that's going to be the, the online sex ed comedy one. That should be fun. Oh, yeah, that sounds really fun. So, yeah, definitely send me that, and I'll invite some people and see if we can get even more people in there. But I'm excited to see comedians from all over that I couldn't be exposed to. So, but yeah. thank you very much for your time, you. and uh, have a great rest of your day. I will. You too. Thanks. Bye. Bye.